So I think that Bitcoin is the best hope that people have to make the world a better place through providing this sort of um, sovereign empowerment. Who is Sailor? Sailor's a Bitcoin bull, bull, bull. Hello there from Bedford. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the mighty Kraken. So yesterday I released part one of my interview with Michael Saylor, the Bitcoin bull, and I said I was going to release part two on Friday. But you know what? Because I love you all. You can have it today. So here it is. Here is part two of my interview with Michael. Uh, but before that, I am going to have a quick message from my amazing sponsors. So check them out first, and then we'll jump straight into the interview. So first up today, we have Casa, who are the best in Bitcoin security. Now, with Casa, it could not be easier to protect your Bitcoin from hackers, personal mistakes, in-person attacks, device failure, and so much more. I'm a customer. I've been a customer for a couple of months now, and I'm loving it. I'm so glad I've got the peace of mind of not being able to make mistakes myself or have other people come and try and steal my Bitcoin. Now, because Casa are such a badass company, they do have a product for every Bitcoin out there. With their gold product, you get triple the security of a hardware wallet, and that's for only $10 a month. With Casa Platinum, you get their 3 of 5 multi-sig, which is the best protection for large Bitcoin holders, and that also comes at a great price. And with Casa Diamond, you get their full service offering, including a customized personal security review, inheritance planning, and of course, their best-in-class security. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. To find out more, head over to keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Also, let's talk about sportsbet.io, because they are also the best in what they do. They are the best in online gaming. And you heard recently that with the Premier League back, that not only did they go and end up sponsoring Southampton, not only did they go and put a Bitcoin logo on the front of a Premier League shirt, but they also became the betting sponsor for Arsenal. Now, listen, I know these guys. I've been out to Estonia. I've spent time with them. They love Bitcoin. They want to do everything they can to promote Bitcoin. And they're now putting Bitcoin in front of billions of Premier League fans worldwide. And with the football back, if you want to have a wager on your team, or you want to have a wager against the team you don't like, well, sportsbet.io always has a bunch of promotions for you football fans. Just head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, and sportsbet.io is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O. And also... We welcome back recently Least Authority as a sponsor for the podcast. Now, listen, this company is for you techies out there. Those of you out there building and creating applications. Least Authority is a security consulting company who are pushing the limits on how to build privacy respecting solutions. They specialize in security audits, design specification reviews and security by design. And they can also help you improve the security of your wallet application, key management solution, layer 2 protocol, P2B network design, use of cryptography, and so much more. Now, if you want to boost your security strategy, you can arrange a free, no-obligation call to find out how Least Authority can help you on your next project. Just head over to their website and hit the schedule a call button. That's at leastauthority.com, which is L-E-A-S-T-A-U-T-H-O-R-I-T-Y.com. Who is Sailor? Sailor's a Bitcoin bull, bull, bull. All right, I think uh, I think I want to dig into some of your ideas and our thoughts around Bitcoin. Okay, so we talked about a few things the other day before we spoke, before we recorded, sorry. Talk to me about your Bitcoin value proposition and the size of the opportunity. I, I think if I was talking to an investor, I would say Bitcoin is the ideal treasury reserve asset 
And it's the ideal treasure reserve asset because for the first time in human history, humans have figured out how to create a digital monetary network which is conservative in nature. It conserves the energy you put into it. It's closed system. There's 21 million coins in the system. And I don't I wouldn't bother with the discussion of the halvings and the and the block subsidies going down. I just don't think it matters. It, there's 21 million coins that are going to be in this system. The only thing that can happen is it heats up or it cools down. If people are buying into this system at a price greater than the moving 200 day average or 200 week average, it's heating up. And if they're if they're selling, it's cooling down. So Bitcoin is is a digital gold and it achieves what what gold bugs wanted to achieve. It creates a, a perfectly scarce asset. There is no inflation it, to speak of. If, if you took the the extra 1.5 million coins that are coming divide by 100 years, you're like 0.1% inflation a year. If you want to compare it to something. In essence, there's no inflation compared to gold. Gold is going to debase 2 to 3% under the best case, which means you're going to lose 88% of your wealth in a gold system. You're going to lose none of that in a Bitcoin system. In a fiat system, you're going to lose 99% of your wealth because of at a 7% debasement rate. And um, if you're looking at stores of value, if you put all your if you put your value into big tech, then it's a crowded trade, and you're taking all the counterparty risk, the execution risk, the competitive risk, the regulatory risk that all of these large companies hold, and the the likelihood that um, that's going to last for a hundred years is pretty low. It's a crowded trade. It's a known trade. People are already in it. It's not an asymmetric risk-reward trade-off. It might go up. It might go down. There's not a lot of people that think that Apple Computer is going to go up by a factor of 10 from here or by a factor of 100 from here. Ten years ago, if you wanted a good investment idea, buying Facebook, Amazon, Apple, and Google when they were unpopular but dominant was a good idea. right? If you're a tech investor... You buy a dominant technical network when they are dominant, and by dominant means $100 billion, they crushed everybody, and they're 90% of the market. But they're unpopular. When, when uh, the rest of Wall Street doesn't quite get it, when Warren Buffett hasn't bought it, right? it's unpopular. That's, that's your opportunity because you could have bought Amazon and got 20 extra money. You could... You could have bought Amazon for 300 bucks a share in 2012, 2013, 2014. It was obvious they, they were already 10 years into beating everybody. That There was no retailer in the world that was going to displace them by then. But uh, they were still massively undervalued. So if you're, if you're thinking about uh, equity as a store of value, the problem is it's a crowded trade. And, um, and you're not beating everybody in the market, unless you manage to pick the one, the Zoom company that's about to go through the roof, but you had to have bought Zoom in January, 
or February yeah. or, or last December. I mean, once 350 million people know about them, they're trading at 100 times revenue or 200 times revenue, and then you've just kind of missed that boat. That's the problem with equity. The problem with, with uh, debt is that with interest rates at zero, the only way debt goes up is interest rates have to go negative and, and the wheels fall off the wagon in so many ways. It's a, it's a challenge. And, the pro- and that leaves you gold. And the problem with gold is the counterparty risk is 95% likely to strip it all from your hands over a long, fr- mm-hmm. long term. But forgetting about that, the, the debasement risk is stripping 88% of it from your hands. And then forgetting about that, let's say you're a short term. You're only going to hold gold for three, four years, five years, 10 years. The problem with that is that, and, and I thought about this, Peter. I thought about buying gold and I thought the real problem with buying 50% gold and 50% Bitcoin is the same exact people that are running toward gold are going to run toward Bitcoin. And when they realize that Bitcoin is a thousand times better than gold, all the money that chased into a safe haven of gold is going to move and chase into Bitcoin. So you're getting screwed two ways. Intelligent people are going to mine more gold when the price goes up and they're and you're going to you're going to get hurt by that and then intelligent investors are going to flee gold into bitcoin as the price goes up and also as they understand and get more educated so do you really want to bet on people staying stupid and ignorant for long periods of time if you're entrusting your life energy and i mean the answer is no i mean no of course not by, by the way, that's why Warren Buffett didn't buy gold. The real problem with buying gold is you're betting against human ingenuity. You're betting that people are just too stupid and lazy to make more gold when the price goes up. And that's always an awful bet. That, that's why if you really believe in gold, you buy the gold miners, because at least the gold miners have the ability to make more gold. And there's a competitive dynamic there. Having said it all, you know, I think Bitcoin is digital gold and it's the hardest, smartest, fastest, you know, strongest treasury asset you're going to get. That's why you should buy it. It's the ultimate long duration asset. Okay, so why is it you see Bitcoin as digital gold? I think it, uh, it's important for people to realize that that uh, Bitcoin is a virtual manifestation of gold. So what do people want in gold? They want it to be hard. And Bitcoin is harder than gold because you can't mine more of it. You can't mine 2% a year. You can mine 0.1% a year. And so it's totally capped. And that's what makes it harder. But there's another way that it's harder. Uh, Because Bitcoin is a living creature. The miners are changing, the nodes are changing, the software is changing, they're all upgrading over time. And, and the ecosystem has exchanges on the front end or s- servers on the back end, clients on the front end. So as all of that software upgrades, that makes it harder. It's anti-fragile in that way because Bitcoin will um, react to threats and adapt and, and fight back. And so we, when we think about gold, we think, well, it's been hard and the same for a million years, but, but Bitcoin is virtual gold and it's not gonna be the same for the next hundred years. It's going to literally get harder 
more secure in, in many ways as the software and the hardware gets better. And so that's, that's an anti-fragile component. I, I think that one of the key themes with all technology networks uh, and the reason for the success of Apple, Google, and Facebook, and Amazon, and the like, is when you dematerialize a product or a service into software, you can make it smarter, you can make it faster, you can make it stronger. The camera on Apple's iPhone is smarter, stronger, faster than the best camera produced before Apple came along. And we all have lots of examples of the way that it's smarter, faster, and stronger. And YouTube is smarter, faster, and stronger video than any video network that came along before. And there are lots of examples. And people get this intuitively when you dematerialize something. So when you dematerialize gold, you don't just make it harder. You make it smarter, faster, and stronger. And the smarter is I put a million dollars of gold in Bitcoin and then I write some software and the software does a million things while I'm sleeping with that asset that that uh, I wouldn't have done and couldn't have done. If um, if this exchange writes an application that lets 10 million people post that they want to borrow against their Bitcoin and they post the price and then 10,000 people post they want a loan against Bitcoin as collateral and they post the price the market clears and you created like an eBay uh, crypto bank and, and that'll run all the time. That's never going to happen with gold. You can't do it with gold. And yet not only can you do it with Bitcoin, it's going to get better every year forever when you do it with Bitcoin. And that's, that's why it's smarter. I mean, a bar of gold never crawled out from under your bed to go and earn interest for you while you're sleeping and then crawl back in bed with you. It's just not going to happen. And if you think about it being faster, when you took the you take the mass out of something, it can move at the speed of light. In this particular case, you want to move $100 million of gold from New York to Tokyo, it's going to cost you $250,000. It's a 3,000-pound block of gold. You'd have to charter a Global Express, pay $10,000 an hour, put a bunch of guys with guns on a thing. Quarter of a million dollars. When you move $100 million of Bitcoin, it's five bucks. And I'm always amused, right? All these guys in the crypto community, they complain about transaction fees. And what they completely miss is the transaction fee to move gold is $250,000. And the transaction fee to move the Bitcoin is $5. And they're, they're thinking about a world where transaction means buy pizza and buy coffee. And that's thinking small. What they ought to be doing is thinking about a world where I wanted to move $100 million or $1 billion at a time. And... and once they thought about that world, they would realize the transaction cost and speed. Bitcoin, in essence, is infinitely fast, infinitely cheap to move, like ridiculously cheap and fast to move. You're just moving the wrong quantity of it. And uh, that, that has consequences to the business in a way. And that's why it's faster. But what does that mean? That means that I could actually move it to Turkey, loan $10 million of it to somebody for four days and move it back. And the, and, the, and the cost to move it is $5 this way and that way, and it moves the speed of light. And it's even faster than, you know, people say it's 10 minutes or 30 minutes to get the confirmations. The point is, it's a better instrument, and I can prove that I have it, and you can prove that you have it. And so the software can, can operate in 100 milliseconds. And so 
we're not talking about 10 times faster than gold. We're talking about 10 million times faster than gold. And that takes me to strong. And the, and the strong element is you're getting a full audit every 10 minutes of the entire supply everywhere in the world, transparently. And there's no security and there is no asset on the planet where you have, have a full audit every 10 minutes. And you've got a bid on it every second of the day, 24-7, 365 in every currency, which means that you could actually mark to market someone's 3,800 Bitcoin every second in every currency in real time. And that's God's gift to a banker, right? Because what you want is perfectly transparent collateral and you can mark to market. If, if I can do those two things, then that means we're really reaching, we're bordering on a world where money never sleeps, right? Truly, we're going we're gonna to achieve the cliche of money never sleeps. And if you want to see it in full view, all you do is pull up a crypto exchange on a Saturday night or a Sunday morning and just watch the ticker scroll. And literally, it's the only thing in the world that is that it, you've got a bid on, nothing else. And uh, so you put those three together and you say, I created a bar of gold, I virtualized it, it moves at the speed of light a million times a second. And I've got computers that think a billion times faster than I think, talking to other computers that are thinking a billion times faster than I think. And then you, try to value that. And is that worth 10% more than a gold bar? No, it's, it's worth, what's the value of Rand McNally when they put it, they printed a physical map. And I wrote about this in the mobile wave. It's like the, the entire map company was worth 50 million, $100 million. What's the value of Google Maps? 50 billion, $100 billion? You had a map company worth some millions and you had a you had a, a, an intelligent, smarter, faster, stronger. And by the way, how smarter, faster, stronger? Google creates a map that tells you how to drive, how to get there, lets you duck the traffic, shows you the restaurant, tells you it's open, and then tells you don't bother going because everybody hates this restaurant. That's a smart, fast, strong map. And you create hundred billion dollar businesses on those things when a billion people start to rely on them. That's the part of, of digital gold. I think investors, people don't get. And if they got that, there's no way you would say to me, I guess I'll put 50% in gold. 50% in gold and 50% in Bitcoin is like saying in the year 2010, I'm going to put 50% of my money in Canon and Kodak and the other 50% in Apple. <laughs> and it's like a laughable thing. It's like, yeah, that was really smart of you. It, it reminds me, Peter, of all the Wall Street hedge fund guys back in 2011, 2012. And I used to talk to them because I wrote this book called The Mobile Wave and I was a big bull on Apple. And I, and, mm -hmm. and I said, well, they, they said to me, why do you like Apple? And I said, well, Apple is going to dematerialize everything you can hold in your hand, every book, every camera, every recorder, a wallet, you know, a, a television, every device is going to dematerialize on the Apple network. And every wealthy person that I know has one of these, which means that 90% of the wealth on the planet is going to be getting everything they can hold off of Apple. And they're going to have a, 
trillion dollar mobile network. Okay, and they said, this is cost. They said, well, this is well and good, but if you invest your money with us, we provide you a service, and whenever Apple stock goes up, we'll sell it and diversify it into all the other computer companies <laughs> so that you don't have too much exposure to Apple because it's kind of risky to have all your money in one stock. And I said, well, you're going to buy all the desktop computer companies that are going to zero when Apple eats them all. And they said, we don't see it that way. And I said, well, technology is dematerializing all these products and services. The, you know, it doesn't make any sense to me. And they said, well, you know, when, when your technology portfolio gets too high, our service to you is we're going to sell your tech stocks like Amazon and Google and Apple and Facebook, and we're going to buy cyclical non-tech stocks to diversify your portfolio to protect you and hedge you. And I said, well, isn't it the case that technology is going to eat everybody and there's not going to be any non-technology companies? Eventually, they'll all be gone. Every newspaper, every television station, everybody mm -hmm. is going to be dematerialized and eaten. And they said, we don't see it that way. And I, and I would say, as a, hist as a student of history, and especially science, and you, wanna, you want an interesting read, go read the history of John D. Rockefeller, and then read the history of Andrew Carnegie, and then read the history of Henry Ford, and then read the history of Hershey, and then go to the craft, craft factories. And what you'll conclude is every successful business in, in modern history was a technology company. There was no success. General Electric, electricity was technology. Automobiles mm -hmm. was technology. The idea that investors don't buy technology is a, is a silly notion. And once you understand that, you realize that the only issue is, is the technology at the beginning of the S-curve or is it toward the end of the S-curve? And the beginning of the S-curve is when it, when it works and everybody can see it's going to work but most of the old school still doesn't understand it. And the end of the S curve is when it works and everybody sees it and all of the old school understands that they're not going to vanquish it and they all rely on it. And then the politicians start to regulate it at the point that people decide it's a, it's a human right. Everyone has a right to, to this a utilitarian right. And then they start to, they start to put uh, price controls on it, or they start to they start to mandate uh, universal access to it, or regulate it. It's a utility. And one last point on this: the richest person in the world shouldn't be a Jeff Bezos. It 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 ought to be the person that delivers your electricity to you, because if I really wanted to wreck your life, I would just turn off the power. Right. There are a lot of things that people rely upon that are more important than Facebook, Google, Amazon, and Apple. I mean, they're important, but electricity is more important. You would you would kill a million people in New York City if you turn off the electricity. And then after that, water. But if I turned off the water, we'd all be dead in three days, maybe two days. And yet name me a water billionaire and name me electrical billionaire. <laughs> we had them. We had them when everybody disagreed with the need for it, right? And then as soon as everybody agreed we need water and electricity, it's not so good an investment anymore. Right. And that that really changes your dynamic here. So that's why I think Bitcoin 
as digital gold is so compelling. And that's why I think that once people understand it, they're not going to buy, they're not going to want to buy 1% of it. They're not going to, because they're holding 99% stuff that's like getting hammered to death by it. And the question is how hammered. But So explain to me how these, explain to me how people think, you know, wealthy people think, because it's not a world I live in, right? So multimillionaire, people worth hundreds of millions, billions, like how do they tend to invest? And especially at a time like now, you know, while we're mid-pandemic, uh, the Fed is printing unlimited amounts of money. You know, how, how do people tend to invest? And what are the hurdles you think some of these bigger investors are having or the hurdles that are in their way to adopting Bitcoin? Yeah, let's just take through the list of things that keep people from buying Bitcoin. Um, number one, uh, reputation. It, the mainstream media characterizes it as uh, casino, gambling, money for hackers, money for criminals, <clears throat> scary, you know, using it to evade currency control or something. So the, the, the narrative of, of uh, it's, for, uh, it's for the contrarians and the like will scare away um, an insurance company, right? Or a big bank. It's going to scare away institutional investors. So, so flipping that narrative is important. I think the next narrative is uh, this is uh, unregulated cyber Vegas. That doesn't help, right? I think all of the unregulated cyber Vegas, although it appeals to someone who is a, a libertarian c- cyberpunk genius hacker, they might like that, um, but it's not going to appeal to someone that has lots of money that they've got in T-bills and, and NASDAQ stocks. They're going to think, I don't, they don't want to go to Vegas and gamble, right? They, they definitely don't want to mm-hmm. be anywhere regulatory off grounds. What they want is to put their money in the world's, the world's safest vault. If the narrative was it's a vault of encrypted energy. It's a crypto vault, or it's it's the world's safest savings and loan, the savings and loan at the end of the universe. You know, as, as marketed by Douglas Adams, the world's safest, most technically advanced savings and loan, protected by the strongest wall of encrypted energy, and it's impossible for anybody to get through it. Your money is safe here, safer than Fort Knox, safer than any bank. You know. It can't be destroyed by a bank. It can't be stolen by a criminal. It can't be destroyed by a government, right? That's that's an appealing narrative. Um, I think that the crypto industry, it uh, it repeats some tropes that are that are uh, counterproductive that don't help it. For example, people always apologize for for Bitcoin being volatile. Oh, it's as you know, it's volatile. Don't put more than the amount you can lose in it. Okay, well, if you look at it over the past four months, it has been no more volatile than any of the big tech companies. I mean, when I check it, it's Apple computers more volatile than Bitcoin for the past four months. Apple computer is the is the is on the Dow. It's a it's the bluest of blue chip stocks owned by an octogenarian Warren Buffett. And it's more volatile than Bitcoin. And it's 10 times bigger than Bitcoin. And it's an establishment stock. So why apologize? People in Bitcoin ought to say it used to be volatile. It's a lot less volatile now. And in fact, of late, the other day I looked and, and uh, it, was an, it was a bad day in the market. The 30-year treasury 
was more volatile than Bitcoin. The 10-year treasury is more volatile than Bitcoin. Every big tech company was more volatile than Bitcoin. The NASDAQ was more volatile than Bitcoin. Silver and gold were more volatile than Bitcoin. And I scratched my head and I was like, why is it Bitcoiners keep telling everybody they're volatile? Why don't they just say, there's stuff that's volatile. Our volatility used to be legendary, but it's a lot less volatile now. I think. Well, maybe, maybe. You know what? If people like Square keep putting money and we could uh, we could go through another one of these crazy bull runs where it does look volatile again. It, I guess it'd be nice if it was volatile to the upside, but when you're apologizing for volatility and and you're um, warning people that this might be too volatile for you, you're you're sending the message that this is a crazy unregulated casino where you could make fortunes or lose fortunes. That's not what people want. I think if you just said you can put your Bitcoin in and it's highly unlikely you'll lose it, I think that's enough. There's a lot of people yeah. that would be happy just not to lose their stuff. And so a, a lot of people in the crypto community feel a need to reach for yield and they, and they feel a need to apologize for past volatility. And if, uh, if they simply said, here's a stable treasury asset it should have a positive real yield over time because we're not printing more of it. Then they could stop. There's another narrative which which hurts, which is um, everybody's number one pushback, if they think about it, is after they get past the, is this uh, for criminals and casino gamblers? After they get yeah, past yeah. that, then their next pushback is, well, it's not really scarce because I can copy the code and create my own coin. And the, the, the proper answer to that, and by the way, somebody forked it, you know, and Bitcoin, there'll be another fork and another fork and another fork. The proper answer to that is Bitcoin is the winner of the crypto wars and has risen above the thousands of other crypto networks to be the one and only true winning dominant crypto. And if you stack the other crypto networks that are designed to be asset networks, a crypto asset network to store your value, Bitcoin's 94% of it. And the next one is 50 times smaller called Bitcoin Cash. And the next one is, is 60 times smaller. And then we can't remember the number four. And so you're buying the category killer of the crypto asset network. And it has been attacked a thousand times and they have all failed. And yes, you could make your own but you're not going to get the $200 billion worth of fanatic maximalists who will fight to the death to defend this one. And so why would you create one which is identical to this one, which is 10 years behind and $200 billion behind? The, you know, Bitcoin is the Facebook of monetary networks. And you could duplicate Facebook too, but you won't because none of your friends are going to switch over to the yo-yo book. And, and I think everybody understands that once they've used, it's why, it's why you're not gonna switch from Twitter or YouTube or Facebook or Apple because there's a massive barrier to switching. The network is dominant. And so if, if the crypto people just said, if they segmented the market and said, Bitcoin is the dominant crypto asset network, done you might carve a channel and pull tens of trillions of dollars of money into the crypto space. 
right? I, I, when I look at crypto, I say it's a $300 billion pond on a beach next to a $300 trillion ocean of assets. Crypto or Bitcoin? Crypto. The crypto, I'm, I'm going to get to the point, the crypto yeah. pond is $300 billion and Bitcoin is $200 billion of it. And now the entire crypto community spends a lot of time talking about altcoins versus Bitcoin and bickering between those two. But what they ought to be doing is talking about alt assets versus Bitcoin. And they ought to be saying Bitcoin's volatility compared to silver or gold is trending down or Bitcoin's volatility compared to Apple stock is trending down. I can actually find metrics of Bitcoin's volatility versus Tron, but that's it's kind of a joke because the $300 trillion is not choosing between Tron and Bitcoin. The $300 trillion, by the way, which is 99.9% .9 of all the wealth and power in the world. So all the money, all the power is not in the pond. If you want to make this business, this entire industry successful, even if you believe, even if you're an Ethereum person, if you're Tron, Ethereum, EOS, Chainlink, Tether, it doesn't matter, you know, Ripple, whatever you are, every one of them has a vested interest in carving a channel between the crypto pond and the, the asset ocean, and then getting $10 trillion to flow into that pond. And if that, and the, the gateway to that is going to be Bitcoin. The only way someone's going to move money from gold, silver, equity, indexes, bonds, real estate into crypto is first through Bitcoin. And then once it's in Bitcoin, then you can you can go at this issue of can I generate yield on it? Can I wrap it? Can I do other stuff? The other part of the crypto market is going to be crypto applications, cryptocurrencies, crypto, other types of crypto assets could thrive. I can conceptualize them, but none of them, I think, have a chance of thriving unless Bitcoin emerges to be the digital gold of the 21st century. And, uh, and so that's what I think people miss in their narrative. And, by the way, and one last point, yeah. they've got a very pernicious number. It's an awful number. The number is uh, dominance. They should not be saying... Bitcoin is 59% dominance and then listing 25 other cryptos on, you know, on their exchange pages. What they should be doing, like any good venture capitalist or any good executive, is they should segment the market and divide and conquer. They should say a currency, a cryptocurrency is a stable coin running on a decentralized network that holds a stable value against the euro or the dollar. That's a currency. And then an, an application is a world computer that will run a complicated smart contract or some application in exchange or what have you. And Ethereum is, is targeted to be that. And Ethereum is 60% of the applications market. I, if I was Ethereum, I'd lot rather be 70% of the crypto application market than be 20% of the crypto market. Right? Why would you pick a fight with somebody you can't beat with every disadvantage? When you could be 70% of the market where maybe you have a chance. And then you would say crypto assets, that's people that want to be digital gold. And, and that's 
That's Bitcoin. Now what happens next? What happens next is somebody with a billion dollars and they've got their money here and there, they've got like half an hour and they say, what is this thing? And you say, well, there are applications, assets and currencies. And they're like, oh, okay, so this is digital gold. Okay, well, isn't that going to get copied? Well, no, it's 94% of the market and a thousand things have failed. They're like, okay, that's, that's the Apple computer of digital gold, right? Yeah, I, I could buy that. That's the Facebook of digital gold. I could buy that. Okay, give me 50 million of that. And then you go to the next thing and say, well, the next thing is crypto applications. What's this, Ethereum? What are they doing? Uh, decentralized exchanges and, well, that's competing against this and that. Well, is that risky, not risky? Uh, maybe our, our venture capital fund will put 10 million into that. We got venture capital for that. It's a bit riskier. What's this next thing? Currency? Okay, what's that, what's that going to yield me? Well, that's, you know, that's, just stable coin, not that much, but I, they're like, well, I got, I got some money market, something. Okay. Just park 3 million in that just in case. Give people simple metaphors and let them put their buckets of money into those things. And don't, and don't try to co-mingle a casino, you know, with a, with a gray market, with a savings and loan, because that doesn't help anybody. And when, when the guys mm. with Ethereum are ripping down Bitcoin, it just reminds me of um, it reminds me of a bunch of crabs in a pot, and you're 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 cooking the crabs, and one crab tries to crawl out, and the other crab's just dragging it back in. Yeah, you're just like all oh, the crabs. You guys are in a 0.1 percent of the market. You ought to cooperate with each other. Point. You think? You think? So that says to me you're not. Hmm. Are you maximalist, or do you? Do you have an interest in other networks? My, Where are you at with that? My view on this is is the idea of a crypto network is I'm going to form a decentralized set of nodes that use a consensus mechanism, ideally with a very difficult, you know, a very stable mechanism like proof of work. So it's very difficult for someone to hijack it. I'm sold on proof of work and I'm, I'm sold on that idea. And then from there, I'm going to provide someone with uh, immortal sovereignty on something. So wh why would I go to the trouble of a proof of work network? Because I wanted it to transcend uh, any company or country, right? I need to get over yeah. the counterparty risk. So what's important enough to want to do that? Well, like all my life force, like money is energy. All the money in the world is all the energy in the world. So all of my life force from now to eternity, that's probably worth protecting. So protecting my money, that's a useful application. Now, are there other applications that, that you could run on that network? Like the idea of a smart contract tied into the Bitcoin network, interesting to me. I don't think it's been proven to be commercially viable, but... But there are other things that I might want immortal sovereignty for or, or, or long duration. Like, for example, let's take a trust. I want to leave money to my children's children's children. Okay, well, people use human constructs to, to implement a, a trust right now. It's a, it's a foundation of people, and I'm trusting the people. If I could create a, you know, some application that would run for 30 or 40 or 50 years that would give my granddaughter you know, an amount of money to get through college or, or get a house or something. 
then maybe I would actually do that on a crypto network. Maybe I would jack it in. I'd probably power it up with Bitcoin. Uh, but I wouldn't say to a Bitcoin core developer, can you please add a bunch of complicated code to deliver flowers to my granddaughter on her 21st birthday? I just don't think it's worth the trouble. Right? Yeah. I, I wouldn't risk the core network for complications. Uh, they break. But I think that um, maybe you want to publish your last will and testament in an immutable fashion that uh, that will last for 100 years so no one can mess with it. Is there a place to publish something forever or to 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 how about to transfer title or keys or rights or license or or to prove provenance? All these things might be interesting on a long duration crypto network. They're not proven. Right. They're not proven, but they're interesting uh, on decentralized networks. The number one use of a decentralized exchange is like regulatory arbitrage. And the number two, you know, so the number two use maybe is um, innovation, uh, cro cross domain innovation. And by that, I mean, if I'm being slowed down by the lowest common denominator of 100 jurisdictions I do business in such that I I can't do this because there's one place out of 100 places that would shut me down. <clears throat> if that's the case and innovation is crippled, then a decentralized solution might actually allow innovation to accelerate. And so I could imagine a legal ethical basis for a decentralized application network. I can also imagine a lot of a, a lot of uh, non-compliant, you know, uses. If I'm using an application network to evade currency controls, eventually it's going to get shut down in the country where it operates, and and so. Mm -hmm. Those are short duration projects if, if all you're doing is getting around, uh, uh, like running an exchange without KYC operating, eventually you're going to get shut down, right? Like we see that happen. Yeah. So it's no good for that. And I think that maximalists have a reasonable argument in saying that nobody's proven that this is going to work for anything other than money and Bitcoin is the money. So yeah, now. I, but I think theoretically... It's possible to imagine an application on a decentralized network other than Bitcoin that would uh, have value to someone. And I think that people should try those things and, and we'll see what happens. And, and, and of all of them, I think that um, the, the, the most magical things that will happen will likely be combinations of Bitcoin as a decentralized monetary power network powering centralized and digital applications in the future. Like, for example, if I want to give flowers to um, my daughter every year for 50 years after I'm dead, I kind of want to plug Amazon into Bitcoin, right? And then maybe 35 years from now when Amazon stops delivering flowers, I want one human being to be able to plug in flowers on into my Bitcoin account and my Bitcoin account will pay for the flowers to get delivered. And I, I'm not really concerned about, you know, the, the fact that Amazon will stop the flower business or maybe a country will fail because I got the money. I've got the power jacked in on a decentralized network. And I'm going to, will I actually use a decentralized flower delivery app versus a centralized 
flower delivery app, I, I kind of think that it's just not going to be important enough to develop a crypto to deliver flowers. But I, but I mm-hmm. won't say that there's nothing that I could imagine that would be important enough to develop a purposeful crypto network for. And then we, we get in this area of hybrid networks where maybe they develop it, but they're jacking into Bitcoin security and Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin rights or keys in order to provide the security to run the other thing. And that's interesting to me. But you're not going to use it for the flower thing, really, because that's turning Bitcoin then into a like a small, you know, low ticket purchase medium of exchange, which you're kind of against, really. You don't think that's a real use case for Bitcoin. Yeah, what what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave my Bitcoin in my will to my nonprofit foundation in order to power the foundation for 100 years to pursue its interest. Ah. Right? For example, one of my interests is uh, make education free for everybody forever. And I have a website, okay. sailor.org, and it does that. It gives away free education. Okay. We have 500,000 students. And um, when I'm dead, I have, you know, I have no heirs. And so my money will flow into that foundation and someone's got to pay the bills. So will it actually pay the bills via transactions every hour? No. It'll probably uh, yeah. deposit x dollars worth of bitcoin converted into fiat currency every quarter or every year and do that forever or until the money runs out right and maybe the money will never run out i mean it's so we, how john so rockefeller we, did this 100 years ago you, you yeah. a lot of money you form the rockefeller foundation you appoint a board of directors of, of five or ten wise people when one retires in 20 years there's another board the foundation takes all the money they invested in a portfolio of stocks or real estate or other assets. And hopefully that keeps up with uh, the inflation rate. And then every year they make grants. And that's, that's, that, that's the traditional 20th century way of endowing a foundation to see out your life's work, whatever that might be. Would you therefore say that in some ways, the crypto industry as an industry which have in, has Bitcoin in it is quite misleading to people because uh, outside of the fact of, yes, these other networks use a blockchain and, yes, they talk about decentralization, really, they're, they're not very similar at all. Bitcoin is money and they are just applications doing other things. And is that unfairly confusing to potential investors? And the reason I ask is, like, Stefan Levera, you, you were on his show, he you know, he often says... Bitcoin, not crypto. He's very much of the idea that we should separate Bitcoin from the rest of crypto. Do you kind of feel the same? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, like if I'm Bitcoin, I would say Bitcoin is digital gold based on cryptographic technology and mm. blockchain and a bunch of other things. I, I think that's one, that's one narrative. If, if you're a Bitcoiner, you just point out Bitcoin is digital gold and you should buy it because it's better than gold. And there's a hundred trillion dollars worth of assets that are considering gold. Oh, you know, all the big banks in April were saying that you should put 25% of all your assets in gold. Like I had my stockbroker calling me saying, move 25% of your assets in gold. That's the call of 50,000 private wealth advisors. And I, and I said, well, I like Bitcoin. They said, oh, we can't sell that to you. So, so the, the conventional, uh. 
That's so funny. Is, is uh, Bitcoin is digital gold. If you're considering uh, putting your portfolio into something that's going to be an inflation hedge and a, and, a, and a store of value, this is the most precious virtual metal invented in the history of the world. And um, the way you communicate that is you show the dominance of Bitcoin and you compare Bitcoin and you show the market cap of Bitcoin and mm -hmm. you uh, lay to rest people concerned about the concerns about the forks of Bitcoin. And you point out that there's an army of fanatic maximalists that will defend the Bitcoin network. And Bitcoin is not going to go away any more than Facebook or Twitter or Apple or Google are going to go away. It's on the firmament. It's done. And they and then if they hear about volatility, say, here's the chart of volatility of Bitcoin versus silver, gold, Apple stock, Amazon stock, T-bills alike. See, it's not that bad. And by the way, you don't show them volatility for the last decade and you don't say, well, you know, it could go down by 10 by a factor of 10 because it did back in 2013. It's not 2013. You would say mm. this is what is doing this year. A lot of people are discovering Bitcoin this year, especially since March. This is how it compares to all your other assets. If you want to buy the Facebook of digital gold, here it is. And you stop. Well, and if you want to scare them away, then you start talking about every altcoin and you start talking about Ethereum and you start sh shitting all over Bitcoin and talking about how transactions are expensive. It is not scalable. And these are all the things that the rest of the crypto community does, the crypto crabs, right? That is, mm. and, they're, and, by, and, they're, and they think they think that the world is 0.1% and that they want to just get Bitcoin's amount of it. And it's a foolish notion because the world is a thousand times bigger than the crypto pond. And if they're smart, what they would do is say what the Lightning Network is doing. We're gonna we're going to make Bitcoin better. You know, we're or if I'm gonna build a smart contract anchored into a Bitcoin security model, build your stuff linked into it, harmonious with it. And and if you're gonna do your you know, the ideal thing is you wanna actually tap into the world's most secure blockchain network, which clearly is the Bitcoin SHA-256 network. That's really what you want. If you could, just the key, for example, if you just had the keys, so you ever see like a, a lockbox on a house and mm -hmm. a big house and there's this little lockbox and the keys are in the lockbox and you go up and you go tit, 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 and you take out the keys and you get in the house. If the Bitcoin network just was the lockbox, and it held the keys to activate a hundred other applications. They could be centralized or decentralized. It doesn't matter. I think, I think the religion of decentralization, it only makes sense for something that requires immortal sovereignty. And Bitcoin does it. The, the immortal life is worth it. I get it. But for other things, I think people are missing the point like, for example, Bitcoin Cash, you don't need a high-speed transaction network to buy a cup of coffee because no crypto network with a proof of work or proof of stake or any decentralization is ever going to be competitive with Apple Pay. It's not going to be competitive with Apple Pay for two reasons. One reason, because Apple has a monopoly on the damn phone. And they own a billion devices and they're going to be able to get between the customer and the wallet 
one step closer than you. You will never get that close. And that's mm -hmm. a pretty compelling reason. They can build it into the chip. They can build it into touch ID. They can build it into face ID. They can build it into speech response. You're not going to get that close to a consumer transaction. And the second reason is because it's a billion times more computationally expensive to use a proof of work network to do it. And so it's always going to be a billion times more expensive and it's always going to be one step or two step removed from Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon. They own the customer. So that it makes no sense to do that. What makes sense is you store 95% of your wealth or your power in the crypto network and then you take 4% and you move it into your, your mobile account and then you use the existing standard digital network, which runs a billion times faster, a billion times better, and you risk 1% of your assets while you use it. And the entire universe is quite comfortable risking 1% of their assets to use an Apple iPhone. If they weren't, no one would have an iPhone and they would all be living in shacks with rocks in the middle of the wilderness and they would not rely upon modern electricity or modern com corporate comforts and they would never get in a car and trust an auto company to build a car for them. It's it just called civilization. People don't have a problem trusting 5% of their wealth or 1%. And so a lot of experiments in crypto they're chasing after digital applications where the problem's been solved by Square or Apple or Amazon. Or, By the way, Square is a heroic achievement. Mm -hmm. The fact that Square can be a payment wallet while they're, while they're competing with Google and Apple is amazing, right? Because Google owns Android and Apple owns iOS. And so you've got Square, which is competing against the two 800-pound gorillas, and Apple has more money than God, and Google has more money than God, and one of them has a billion and a half loyal users, the other has five billion loyal users, and Jack Dorsey is actually making headway against them with Square. It's hard. He's got 80, 100 billion dollars in capital. So you think the crypto industry is going to outsquare Square and outsquare Android or outpayment Apple and beat PayPal. It's a silly notion to pursue. And it's con well, it's what about what about what about let me throw something in here for you. What about that's for convenience, day to day convenience. Um, yeah, in a coffee shop, down the pub, in a restaurant, do my shopping, whatever. Yeah, I've moved to I, I, I was reluctant to use Apple Pay for a long time. And I was like, hold on, this is just so much easier than getting out my debit card just you know, double click done. Um, so I get the convenience thing, but what about those people where convenience isn't the number one requirement? Can, they want to buy something illicit or something our government you know, wouldn't look too kindly upon, or they just want general privacy. Uh, yeah, and that's not just in places like the UK or or the US. You know, maybe in people living in authoritarian regimes. What about that scenario? We still need to think about those people, right? Um. If you're a refugee fleeing a war zone, then $10,000 in Bitcoin might save your life. Mm -hmm. It'll be a one-time transaction. And you're not going to care whether it takes 22 minutes and whether it costs $5 in transaction fees. 
So if it really is a life-changing transaction across jurisdictions, then it, it can go in 30 minutes and you can pay three bucks. You don't need to change Bitcoin and, and, and Bitcoin cash or some other lightning fast thing isn't going to be relevant. It doesn't matter. On the other hand, if somebody wants privacy and they really feel strongly about it, then there's a place to build some kind of application. Ideally, the thing that's probably going to work is going to be like a lightning wallet with privacy tapped into Bitcoin where you move money into a small wallet and all your transactions on that wallet are private. And you, you can probably do it with a, uh, a second chain or an off-chain solution, which might be centralized and might be decentralized. And maybe you need a Monero, you need something like that. And, and if so, the market will determine that. Let me tell you what I think. I think that yeah. there's a $50 trillion requirement to store your money in a way that you don't lose it all. And I think that there is a much smaller requirement to store money in a privacy wallet for like, I'm not going to judge people on how they spend their money. But what I'm going to say is if Bitcoin diverted all of their energy to make itself private and became known as a network of complete and utter privacy, it probably is counterproductive to its own interest because you don't really want the yeah. you don't want the United States government to say Bitcoin is completely private because now it becomes the perfect tool for a money laundering. Now it becomes the enemy. Now they're going to shut it down. So we're right. better okay. off to actually have other off-chain solutions that solve that problem. There, there's no way you're going to get a hundred trillion dollars to flow into Bitcoin if its use case is directly against the the interest of a government that is within. Right. So you don't want to be that good. I think most politicians and most reasonable people will say, oh, you wanted to create a better version of gold because gold is heavy and ancient and uh, and bleeding energy, 3% a year. I get it. Okay. I think they're okay with that. I think that when you go beyond that, you're, you're getting into another regime. And now, now I'll make a point, which is, like uh, there are people that are really they're really passionate about Bitcoin is to bank the unbanked. OK, well, if bank the unbanked means let someone flee their country and save their life with a life changing transaction, then, yeah, good. But if bank yep. the unbanked yep. means some dude in the sedan needs to do 37 Bitcoin transactions a day to buy coffee at a dollar a transaction, it's silly. Good luck. That's not yeah, what yeah. that guy needs. And, and by the way, the, the problem with that would be if if you wreck the network, like right, for example, if we all abandon Bitcoin to go to Bitcoin Cash so that it does transactions a little bit faster for the dude on the bicycle in Sudan who wants to buy a cup of coffee, right? Then what about the dude that wants to actually send $100 million from New York to Tokyo and not lose it? What about that? You just gave up 50x security. I mean, that, that guy is not going to sacrifice 50x security because he wants to save three bucks. So they're, they're different ideas. I, I think that um, the reason Apple won and, uh, and not Android and the reason everybody else got crushed was because although Apple didn't have 80% of the market share, Apple had 80% of the wealth 
share. If, if you look at the money in the world and you, if you lined up 100 wealthy people in a room, 90 of them would have an iPhone or an iPad. And at the point that you saw that, you knew that Apple's revenues on their application store and their profits were going to be insane. At one point, I think they said Apple had 150% of all of the profits in the mobile phone business. Wow. Which means that everybody else was losing money to compete with them. Mm, Why? Insane. Because they had the wealthy customers. Now, that was important to sell luxury devices. It's a thousand X as important if you're selling financial services. For example, like the biggest bank in the world is not the bank with a billion customers because the first 10 million customers have 80% of the money in the world, <laughs> right? I could build a bank with 1 million customers that would be a thousand times as big as a bank with a billion customers because they don't all, the value and use of the financial product scales with the amount of money you put it into it, not the number of heads. So if if you're creating a crypto network to, to move a dollar around, and if, if all you can imagine is people with $37 that are irritated that they're, they couldn't buy coffee with their, their crypto, right? Then you're building a bank for people with no money. Uh, mm -hmm. This is a snarky observation, but it's amusing. Like you're building a bank for people with no money. You know, there's another bank building a bank for Warren Buffett and Warren Buffett, one decision, right? will put more money in, in your bank than the bottom 5 billion people on the planet that are happy with the product. So, so you have to, you have to be thinking, what am I trying to build here? And by the way, I get the fact that it's a humanitarian thing, right? I mean, I care about the, the human empowerment and human rights here, but I think this is an example where the way to help them is to make Bitcoin a successful monetary network as opposed to make it a, 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 a trivial transaction network. Mm -hmm. So on the day that Warren Buffett buys $10 billion worth of Bitcoin, Every single person in Africa and Asia and every disadvantaged economic refugee everywhere in the world is going to be benefited. He will have done more for them than any amount of tinkering with the code to make it quicker and easier to do your transaction. How? How so? Right? How would that transaction? But, well, for first of all, because... If you own one Bitcoin, when he does it, it's going to drive the price of Bitcoin to the sky and you're all of a sudden going to be the economic beneficiary because the network's going, the price is going through the roof. And that's a direct benefit. The second benefit is that if, if all of the institutional wealth in the world starts to see Bitcoin as a safe place, uh, as a digital gold and as a treasury asset, they're going to use all of their communication skills and political skills in order to legitimize it and protect it. And you're going to have, um, you're going to have people protecting the crypto rails and, and the, uh, the, the functionality of it, you know, in the corridors of power in London and Paris and New York and DC and Moscow, right? Mm -hmm. Because Beijing, because that matters. What, 
What's different right now? Wealthy, powerful people use Apple stock as a store of value. <laughs> I right? know. I mean, that's what's going on mm -hmm. and, and Amazon that they basically using big tech for a while. They use bonds, but now they're using big tech and, and they're, they're tinkering with gold, but let's think this through. Somebody in Africa can't buy a thousand dollars worth of Apple stock. Maybe they can't buy it at all. Yep. Right. Full stop. If they did buy it, there's no way they can wire it to their sister across borders to get her home safely. That, you know, there's no way they can hold it from seizure from a hostile government. And so if Apple stock or big tech or NASDAQ stocks are store of value, and if all of the wealth and power on earth is supporting them, that's not going to trickle to the other billion people that are in the countries where the currencies are collapsing. It doesn't help them at all. They don't have, people talk about, they talk about the inability to get dollars, right? If you're if you're one of the the quote unquote unbanked, you can't get dollars. You certainly can't get stock. You can't get gold. If you got gold, someone will club you over the head and take your gold, right? Mm -hmm. So what what can you get? You can get a mobile phone. And I wrote about this in the mobile way, where Africa leapfrogged the U.S. and everybody just went directly to mobile networks. They never bothered with the land networks. If I can get a mobile phone and it running Android or iOS, then I could carry around $10,000 worth of Bitcoin on it. And that would be a fortune for someone in some countries. That would be enough to start a life. And it could be a thousand, it could be a hundred. It doesn't really matter what it is. The point is I have a bank, now I need it to work and I, I, need, I need the political patronage. And I think that, um, the political patronage comes when you have the institutions buying into this as a store of value. There's there's nothing you can do to help people more than, than, to, than to defend them in the court of public opinion and the court of political opinion, right? One way or the other. Who is Sailor? Sailor's a Bitcoin bull, bull, bull. Next up, I talk to Michael Moore about MicroStrategy and their Bitcoin purchase. But before that, I have a message from my amazing sponsors. So let's talk about Kraken, my favorite place for buying and selling Bitcoin. It's the only place I use for buying and selling Bitcoin. And you're going to say, Pete, it's just because they're a sponsor. Nope, not just because they're a sponsor. Listen, they have been consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. And security is really important to me. Look, I've talked about it a lot with Casa. Security is so important with Bitcoin. So I only want to use an exchange where I 100% trust their security. They also have the best in class in customer service. So whatever issue you have, whoever you are, wherever you are, if you reach out to them, they're going to help you get that shit sorted. And if you want to start trading Bitcoin, they have all the tools that you could possibly need. Whatever your level of experience, at Kraken.com, it could not be easier to sign up and start trading Bitcoin. They also have a beautiful mobile-first app. So if you're out and about, if you're sat at KFC, you're at Starbucks, you think, I want me some more Bitcoin, you can whip out their mobile app and you can start buying Bitcoin on the go. With their margin trading, futures and OTC desk, Kraken has every option covered for you. There is no better place to trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at Kraken.com or you can download the app. It's available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Also, we can't finish this show without talking about BlockFi, the future of Bitcoin and financial services. Now, I am a BlockFi customer. 
I have an interest account. At the end of each month, I love checking my balance and seeing that my Bitcoin is working for me. Now, you can also do this. You can open up an interest account with BlockFi. But not only that, using your Bitcoin as collateral, you can take out a USD loan. You can also fund your BlockFi account directly from your Bitcoin wallet. And with the BlockFi mobile app, you can now fully manage your account on the go. With so much more coming this year, with everything the team is working on, they're going to smash it. If you're interested in checking BlockFi out, I recommend you first do your own research, then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Who is Sailor? Sailor is a Bitcoin bull, bull, bull. Do you see any situation where if the company's coming too quickly, that it pushes the price like a lot of people will miss out on the opportunity. And I know it can always go. And people will say, oh, we say that every cycle. But in some ways, I kind of want my friends in before I want the the companies in. I want them to ride the benefit of that massive wave. Well, Peter, that's why that's why I was buying it before I was talking about it. <laughs> yeah, I know, man. I know a reasonable person would buy it first. But uh, I don't know what the price will do. I mean, like, like that's... You know, who was the president that said, if you see 10 problems driving down the road at you, nine of them will probably drive themselves into a ditch before they get you. <laughs> it, it may never be a problem. It's not, it would be a good problem to have if you were successful, if you're inconveniently successful. I would prefer that to the other problem, which is not being successful. But I, I, I don't think that'll happen. I think that um, that as this evolves, the ecosystem will grow and more opportunity will spread to everyone in the world um, via mobile networks to the palm of your hand. And I, I, I think there's zero chance that people buying gold is going to cause mobile phones in Africa to help anybody because you can't program it. And I don't think there's much chance that people buying sovereign debt or equities on regulated stock exchanges from prime brokerage is going to spread to the billion people on the planet because it's, if it was going to, it would have, right? <laughs> I don't yeah. know. Will Robin Hood be out there gallivanting around? It's, I just, I don't think it's going to happen. So, so I think that Bitcoin is the best hope that people have to make the world a better place <clears throat> through providing this sort of um, sovereign empowerment or, or monitoring. Okay. What about the, the people and the companies who are focused on, I think I know what you're going to say about this, but on the Bitcoin circular economy, where they're talking about, you know, they've got companies who who only use Bitcoin as a currency and, sorry, not only, they use Bitcoin as a currency for buying and selling. And they also use Bitcoin as uh, their balance sheet. They try and run entirely Bitcoin businesses. It's a good point. A lot of people in the community are really enthusiastic about <clears throat> like BTC pay and we want to sell stuff in Bitcoin and we want to pay our employees in Bitcoin and the like. With all due respect, I, I think it's the wrong model. Okay. I think a much, a, a much better model would be Bitcoin is a crypto asset and you put it on your treasury, on your balance sheet and you hold it. And when you need money, you take it out and convert it to fiat. And when you have excess fiat, you convert it back into Bitcoin, right? That it's a, uh, I think that's the right model. And I think there ought to be something else called cryptocurrency. And the cryptocurrency is Tether or DAI, a stable coin 
and that ought to be a stable coin in the in the sovereign currency in the domain where you do business. And uh, I think those two things can thrive, but I don't think Bitcoin can be a currency, and I don't think that uh, other cryptos should be an asset. And I'll, and I'll tell you why. I mean, a very a very mm. uh, simple reason. I think you'll get challenged on this a bit. Hopefully, but hmm. let me tell you why I think it just it, it makes sense. The IRS tax code in the United States, it it uh, it characterizes Bitcoin as an as an asset. When you buy it and you hold it for a decade, there's no tax on it, no tax to hold on it. And by the way, the IRS, the tax code has extraordinary impact on the valuation of assets. For hold example, on, that's a that's a hodl code. It's like an incentive to hodl. Well, more than an incentive. It beats you to death if you don't, and I'll yeah. get to that. If you buy a million dollars worth of real estate in Florida as an individual, you pay 2% property tax per year forever. So that means you're going to pay $20,000 in tax every year. And in, and in 50 years, if the real estate's not reappraised, you're going to lose your house. Or it's even worse than that, right? You're going to have to come up with a million dollars in cash and a and a million dollars in in money to buy the house. So the only way to hold real estate in Florida is to have twice as much money as the cost of the real estate. That's an impact. If I buy Bitcoin, a million dollars worth, and I hold it for 50 years in Florida, there is no property tax on Bitcoin in Florida. There is no property tax on it. <clears throat> At the at the U.S. level, I will still have the same Bitcoin, and it'll be worth one Bitcoin times the price at the time. On the other hand, if a company like mine buys a million dollars worth of Bitcoin, and then we pay you, and I pay you a hundred thousand a year, and the price of Bitcoin doubles, then I actually have to pay you a hundred and thirty thousand a year. Because I, I convert the Bitcoin to cash, pay you 100000 in cash, and then I owe the IRS $30,000 because I have to realize the capital gain on uh, the Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And by the way, I can't escape this. If you say pay me in Bitcoin, I give you a million dollars or I give you 100000 worth of Bitcoin, I still have to calculate the price in dollars when I transfer it to you and account for it as if I had sold it. And now I owe the IRS $30,000. So you can see from my point of view, if I were to put um, $500 million into Bitcoin, and then I were to pay $500 million worth of bills with it, and if the price doubled, I would bankrupt myself. I bankrupt. Like, I'm bankrupt. Mm. What you're doing is you're accelerating the, the tax forward 30 years. And one of the cardinal rules of an investor in life is you always want to roll over your investments tax deferred. You never want to pay the tax. Matt, what do you think would happen to your Bitcoin if the UK government passed a law saying you have to pay unrealized capital gains tax on the, on the Bitcoin at the end of the year if the price goes up versus where you bought it from? Well, there's a number of consequences of that. I mean, firstly, I would leave the country. <laughs> Okay. okay. Uh, but secondly, right it puts a, but it puts a selling demand. It puts sell pressure as well. It, would you say that's a hostile tax code? 
Of course, yeah. Okay. So what I'm saying is the existing tax code is hostile to using uh, Bitcoin as a currency. Right. It's, it's a hostile tax code. That's, that's, why, that's why what you want is a stable coin. The definition of a currency is that thing that you can buy and sell with for which mm -hmm. the government is not hostile to you. And so there, there's talk about Israel having a law that, that deems Bitcoin a currency. And that means that you wouldn't get taxed on the capital gain. You wouldn't recognize the capital gain or the loss when you transferred it. <laughs> That's a friendly tax code. But, but the point, of course, is unless you're a criminal and you don't pay taxes, right? That's a if you don't pay taxes, yeah, sure, you're a criminal. But they all get busted for you know Al Capone and the like. They all get busted. <laughs> McAfee just got busted for not paying taxes. They'll he get did. you on not paying taxes long before they'll get you on the other stuff you did. So taxes is a bright line. So if you're not a criminal and you intend to file your tax returns as a law-abiding citizen, then you have to pay taxes. And now what you see is there's two crippling problems with using Bitcoin as a, uh, as a currency to, to buy anything or sell anything. The first crippling problem is I sell 100,000 things a year. And the price is, is different every time I sell it. I have 100,000 different accounting entries. It's a nightmare. The price of Bitcoin when I sold it. And then I pay 100,000 things a year. And I have to calculate the price of Bitcoin when I paid it. And then the question is, which Bitcoin did you, did you transfer or did you sell when you sold it? Because there's a different combination. And so I have to come up with all of these combinations and it's an accounting nightmare. And this, well, the software does it for you now. I mean, I still think it's an accounting nightmare, even with the software, but at least there's software that does that for you now, you know, recommends okay. which coins, etc. Let me go on to the next point. It took mm -hmm. me a decade to install the software that I run my company on. It takes 10 years. <laughs> and I'm running that software in Japan, Korea, Australia, yeah. everywhere in Europe, Rio. It's in a different currency. It's 27 countries, 27, well, not 27 currencies, but 15 currencies. Every single place, we're selling in local fiat, we're buying in local fiat, we're paying taxes in local fiat, we're transacting, we're, we're keeping a ledger in local fiat, then we're converting into USD, then we're calculating corporate taxes, then we're sweeping into treasury. Now, by the way, we're not a big company. I mean, 500 million is a mid-sized company. A lot of companies are bigger than us. It would take us three years to rebuild our accounting systems to do what you've described that we wanted to do in Bitcoin. And then at the end of the three years and 30 people to do it, the reward that I would get is probably about $30 million a year in excess taxes. Right. So why am I, why, by the way, and 0.1% of the people in the world have Bitcoin. So why in the world would I incur, by the way, if I generate 50 million in operating income, it's a pretty good year. Why would mm -hmm. I give two thirds of my operating income in taxes to the federal government for the privilege of bragging that I'm doing business in Bitcoin? By the way, half my finance department would probably quit, right? And, and the software would break 
And if I went to my software, by the way, if I went to my provider, you know how long I've been using the same uh, the same software to do my accounting, Peter? You know when I installed 20, it? You're going to tell me like 20 years or something, aren't you? 1996. 1996. 24 years ago. Jesus, I was still at school, dude. Okay. And you know what would happen if you came in my office and you suggested to me that I rip it out and replace it with something different? Everything would collapse. Yeah. I mean, that would go nowhere. I mean, maybe you could apply chuckle. The, <laughs> by the way, and the bigger players are people like SAP, and people spend $300 million to install this software, and they uh -huh. take three years to five years, and then they don't change it for 30 years. So the first problem is accounting. Even if I wanted to, it's it's rewiring the DNA of these multinationals. <clears throat> Not going to happen. The second problem is tax. You would have to be a moron to want to pay hundreds of millions of dollars of tax on the volatility of the asset you're holding electively for no reason whatsoever, mm -hmm. right? Why would anybody want to accelerate taxes forward 30 years and pay them today with money they don't have. What would happen, by the way, is that Bitcoin would become a volatility engine. Like if, if you had to pay tax on Bitcoin based upon the closing price each month and you had to pay it to the UK government, your Bitcoin would shrink to nothing because you'd have to keep selling your Bitcoin to pay the taxes. Yeah. Right? Because if the tax... You can't get the refund, you know, like... Yeah, you don't get the refund when it goes, it goes the right. other way. So the problem really is the tax code defines what the asset can be. You can buy it and hold it for 20 years. And, and by the way, the last point is, if you really want to be successful as an investor in a treasury, your plan is to buy something you can hold forever, never sell it, and if you if you ever need cash, you're going to borrow against it, pledging it as collateral. Right? People pledge their real estate as collateral. People pledge their stock as collateral. Mm -hmm. For example, Peter, if you, if you have ten million dollars worth of Apple stock, do you know what the bar what the lending rate is for Apple stock is? You know what you can do with that? No idea. You Tell can, me. You can just for short sellers. You can walk into a bank, you can pick up the phone, call call your bank, and you can borrow $5 million, maybe $8 million against the $10 million in Apple stock at LIBOR plus 50 basis points, which means 0.62% interest right now. Okay, and do you know what the tax treatment is on that? Like, what's your tax bill? Tell me. There is no tax bill. Okay. So, for example, if you if you had a million dollars worth of stock and if you needed a hundred thousand dollars to live, if you sell a hundred thousand worth of stock, then you pay 25, 30, 35, 40 percent taxes, up to 50 percent taxes. So you would sell a hundred thousand but have fifty thousand. So you have to sell a hundred and seventy five thousand. And now you've only got eight hundred thousand worth of stock left. And you do that five years in a row and you have no stock left. You're so if out. you're selling your asset, you uh, you have no assets, and and by year six you're poor. Okay, so what do you do? You have a, a million dollars worth of stock. You borrow a hundred thousand dollars against the stock, and you pay one percent interest. And so 
you had to borrow $101,000 against the stock and there's no tax on it, you didn't, you had no income. You have no capital gains. How long can you do that, Peter? You can if do that forever. Asset, if the asset goes up 10% a year. So for example, if I have a million dollars worth of a stock and it's going to go up 10% a year and I borrow, let's, let's say I borrow 80,000 a year against it. Yeah. I, I can borrow against it forever. Okay. Where does that happen with real estate in New York city? <clears throat> I own a city block. It goes up by 8% a year. My family never sells it. We gift it to each other. I need some money 82 years after my grandfather bought the real estate. What do I do? I go to the bank and I, you ever heard the phrase refinance? Yeah, of course. I, I refinance the real estate, which means when my grandfather bought it, it was worth 10 million, but today it's worth 187 million and we've got 120 million in debt on it. So we change it to 140 million in debt and I take $20 million of debt against an asset. And I don't have a capital gain because I didn't sell anything and I have no income because I've got an asset. I've got a liability to offset my asset. I'm living. Hold on. Is, it, is, this, uh, is, this what Don, is this what Donald Trump's been doing? This is what every real estate investor has been doing for 100 years. And, and yeah. he is included. Yeah, that would explain it. For example, like what could be sweeter than this, Peter? I find a, a billion dollar building or a billion dollars worth of real estate. Mm -hmm. I have a hundred million dollars. I, I pledge a hundred million in equity. I borrow 900 or I, or I borrow 900 million. And so I've got 900 million in debt. I got a little bit of equity and then the Fed prints some money and all assets inflate by 20%. And now my building is worth 1.2 billion and I have 900 million in debt on it, hundred million in equity, but I have 200 million in unrealized capital gain. You wouldn't sell the building cause you'd have to pay tax on the 200 million. You would refinance the building and you would take another 200 million out of the building. And now you, and then you pay off the equity. Maybe I borrowed the equity from somebody else, my cousin, I pay them off and I've got a hundred million free and clear. And I hope, that someone prints some more money. So the building goes up by 8% next year. And if it goes up by 7% a year for four years running, I'll have a $2 billion building and I'll have mm -hmm. 900 million in debt against it. And I'll refinance it again and I'll take out $500 million and I'll pay 0% tax on it. And I'll go buy another building and I'll go borrow, borrow money against that. So I'll leverage that up. And pretty soon you have lots of things that have debt on them and you never made any money your entire life and you never paid any tax your entire life. And what do you need? You need two things. You need low interest rate loans. You need uh, bankers, you know, you need good banking relationships. You need to get along with the bankers and then you need uh, for the monetary supply to expand so that asset prices expand. And if you have those three things, you use leverage to acquire assets and then you borrow it against your assets. And by the way, this is my, my point really is you don't really want to be generating income, right? This is what Kiyosaki says, right? You don't want to generate income and pay tax. You want to own something which appreciates without being taxed with the ideal holding period of forever, right? Warren Buffett says it. You just want to hold it forever. 
And and uh, that's why that's Bitcoin. That's my answer to like all the people in the Bitcoin community that are desperately trying to actually get it to be a you know a, a way to pay employees or sell things. It's a really difficult heroic task, but it's it's too hard. A much better idea is to buy and if you want the benefits of crypto, buy and sell it in a cryptocurrency like uh, Tether or Dai. If you if you really want cheap, fast transactions, run a stable coin on a fast network, either centralized or decentralized, and then convert your Bitcoin into stable and then move that back and forth because there's no tax bill and the accounting is simple. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm just conscious of time. We've done three hours, but I do have I, – I, I mean, there's a bunch – we could have done another three hours. There is – one other thing that I specifically would be interested in your view on in that you mentioned towards the start, you've become to understand essentially the different sex factions within Bitcoin. Um, you know, we have the Austrian economics, uh, economists and the libertarians, but actually there's a, there's a very strong group of Bitcoiners who want to see an end of the Fed. You know, they want to see many want to see the end of the government. They want to defund the government and, and hopefully Bitcoin can do that and, well, where are you with all that side of things? Uh, I think I'll live with the government. <laughs> okay. You status. Uh, I, <laughs> I think that um, to the extent that Bitcoin gets affiliated with um, hostility toward local governments, that's not going to be good for Bitcoin, right, for obvious mm -hmm. reasons. I, I'm not a complete anarchist. So, for example, I do, I do acknowledge that there's a, that, uh, a place for government. So, so there's two phrases that pop up, you know, inflation is theft and taxation is theft. I agree with the first. I don't agree with the second. I agree that inflation okay. is theft, that when you print money, you're stealing money from, you're stealing energy and purchasing power and wealth from disadvantaged people. I agree with that. I think that taxation is not theft. I think taxation is it can be inconvenient and sometimes it can be obsessive, oppressive, right? Like too much. On the other end, there's a place for highways and there's a, I don't have a problem with the government providing security and clean water and, and hygiene and uh, schools and public utilities. And uh, the libertarians debate back and forth over the role of government. And, and there are arguments that, you know, these could be, these things can all be accomplished by um, <clears throat> private entities. And I, I'm not so sure, but I, I would say clearly I'm in favor of the camp of less government. I'm on, yeah. I, I like Ronald Reagan. Like if I, had to, I, I like the guy that said, you know, less, less government is better. And uh, let's see what we need to do. I don't think it's very practical to go to zero government instantly, right? That, that creates another set of problems. And I don't think that, well, constructive. Yeah. So I, no, I know, I agree with that. Like the big red button would just lead to chaos because people are institutionalized with government. Um, but I've I've brought it up so many times. But I did an interview with Eric Voorhees, who you obviously mentioned his uh, debate with Peter Schiff, and I I kind of asked him about that because I was like I just don't see it working. He said, "I look, I don't want that right now. Let's not start at that point. Let's just start with one percent less government or five percent. You know, five percent." Uh, a smaller budget each year let's just try and reduce government and i've kind of always liked that idea of 
almost like uh, I mean you've got a software company so you you will know about a b testing right I almost see a we need to wean ourselves off the government and a b test what works and what doesn't you know or what can go first or what do we need um i I know security and and uh, border protection and one of the things that are like very important and you know in the UK the NHS is seen as very important and the highways are seen as important but what are the what are the stupid bits we could definitely get rid of and if you were for if the government was forced to stick to a budget where would it where would it cut itself first yeah I think I think the political conversation is ongoing and there are lots of different views on it I think it's I don't think it's very constructive and I think it's even counterproductive to allow that to dominate the narrative of the Bitcoin community. It would be an example of the perfect being, being the enemy of the good. Like, uh, even if you believed that, even if you had a very strong view on government, I believe that it's counterproductive to the interest of Bitcoin. A much more constructive thing to do would, would be to incrementally improve the world. And I think that if all you did was keep people losing their money <clears throat> by getting taken advantage of by gold merchants, the world's a better place. And if we gave them, if we gave people a simple savings and loan that, that yielded 5% interest where they weren't going to get ripped off, I think you could be proud of that. I mean, there's how many billion people on the planet don't have any, any safe place to put their money right now? Right? You don't have to topple every government to make Bitcoin say a safe place to put your money, right? So if you give seven and a half billion people a safe place to put their money, the planet would be a better place. And then if you gave them a little bit of individual sovereignty or a little bit of control, it'd be even better. And so I think make the world a better place is a logical place to start. I, there aren't that many people that are going to say, I disagree with you about that making the world a better place thing. I mean, a lot of people can come together on that. But on the other hand, if we get down into prescriptive actions about what the government should or should not do, I think you're going to have huge amounts of inflammation and pushback and, and bonafide debates. And of course, it, it distracts from the matter at hand, because what's, what is more important than anything is that we go from 20 million people that use Bitcoin to a billion people that use Bitcoin. And we go from a narrative where people are afraid of it, don't trust it, or are worried that there's some negative connotation to a world where they say, oh, Bitcoin, it's just like Facebook for gold. It's Facebook for digital gold, or it's, or it's Apple for digital gold. And by the way, when Apple and Facebook and Twitter and Google got big enough that they're all like trillion dollar companies, politicians started worrying about them a bit. And there's a debate about, you know, Twitter and Facebook and Apple and what they should or shouldn't do. Why don't we just leave that debate for about another decade <laughs> about whether it, people are worried that Google works too well or that Twitter works too well or that Apple works too well. Why don't we wait until Bitcoin is a hundred times bigger than it is and then people are worrying that it works too well. And then we can engage in politics because right now, this is a, this is a much simpler discussion. All you got to do is say, we reinvented gold and made it digital gold. It's 100 times better than gold. And then you've got 100,000 stockbrokers stampeding millions of people into gold. And you could just say, hey, we're, just, we're that but better. 
And then everything else that everybody wants, whatever their hopes or aspirations are, are 100x more likely to be realized if Bitcoin is successful as a digital gold. And there's no reason to fight these other battles now, whatever they might be. I mean, I, I don't disagree. Other people will, naturally. I don't disagree. I certainly don't. I certainly think there is a, a, a secondary benefit, though, to more people having the ability to store money in Bitcoin and have it uh, seizure, seizure resistant, censorship resistant, in that it, it does reduce the... You get to a kind of tipping point where it will reduce the effectiveness of the government. They maybe have to uh, consider their budgets. But that said, we've seen plenty of stale, uh, states fail, um, currencies fail, and it's not like we've always seen like a positive revolution that's come out after it. Venezuela, Zimbabwe, like we're not even seeing much progress in Lebanon right now. So um, I'm nervous about a collapse of the state. I understand the utopian goal. I'm just nervous about it. I, I, you know, civilization has progressed over hundreds of years. Are we really in that bad a state that we want to tear it all down and, and start again? I don't, I don't honestly know the answer. Um, but uh, yeah. Oh, man, we've done a long time. You feeling all right? Yeah, I probably got another 10 to 20 minutes in me, but or we could take a break right now. What? what? Well, you know what? That's a, that's a record-length interview now. We've hit a good point. I think we should... I've got a couple of things I want to close out on because um, okay. there's a couple of other rabbit holes we could go, go down. We could do those another time. So listen, look. You're, uh, you've made your big bet. You're in. You're in, you're, in, you're in the world of Bitcoin. But there's other people who are, are still on the sidelines, you know, and you've given some great articulate and eloquent answers. But I really want your elevator pitch now for Bitcoin. Like all these people thinking about, should I be in, whether it's company treasuries, whether it's personal wealth, what would you say to them? I would say in our current macroeconomic environment implies that we're going to see 10 to 15% expansion of the monetary supply every year for the next three to five years. Assets are going to inflate. Bitcoin is digital gold. It's going to have the highest real yield because you can't make any more of it. All the other uh, investments are crowded trades. Bonds are well understood. Stocks are well understood. Gold is well understood. They all have, uh, they have the same upside as downside at this point. And, there, and, and there's no way for you to get an edge. Bitcoin has an asymmetric proposition. You can get an edge here because it has a history which, uh, which some, has scared some people away. And so it hasn't been embraced by the institutional community. If you're the first, then you'll have an edge. It's been traditionally difficult to buy. And a lot of people, they can't pick up the phone and buy it. And so if you go to the trouble to figure out how to acquire it, that will give you an edge. And um, it has all of the technology upside of Apple, Google, Facebook, and Amazon from a decade ago. And you saw what data did over the past decade. Bitcoin is the, is the first successful digital monetary network. And so if you come into it right now, you're coming into it with a $200 billion market cap. And... And it's gotten to this point without the institutional interest that it's currently gleaning. So it makes sense to be early to this trend. As the price goes up, 
the value of the offering goes up because the liquidity is the value proposition. So this is an example of, of something where the higher the price goes, the more value the bullet gets, the more people want to have it, and the more robust it gets. That's not true with a stock. If the price of a stock goes up, it delaminates from its cash flows and its PDE goes from 20 to 30 to 40 to 50 to 80 to 100. And so with, with many things, as the price goes up, the risk gets higher. But with, with Bitcoin, the price goes up, the risk probably gets lower. And it's such a simple thing. It doesn't have uh, all the execution risk and regulatory risk and competitive risk that so many other things have because it is so very simple. It's just 21 million gold coins in cyberspace. Buy one, and as, the, and as people adopt the network, the value proposition increases. As technology gets better, the value proposition increases. As the economy works, people are productive, they'll buy the network, they'll, they'll sweep more cash flows into it, the value pro proposition increases. And as the central bankers print more money, the value proposition will increase. That's my pitch. Listen to that. Amazing. Right. Well, look, if people want to follow any of your work, so there's a couple of things I think you should point them towards. Point them towards um, the your own personal kind of Twitter. Um, also, the you talked about the education resource. And then anything else? Anything else you I want to point people to? Three things to go check out. Check, check me out on Twitter, Michael Saylor, under, with underscore after Michael. And then also you can go to uh, microstrategy.com. And we actually have a bunch of stuff on our, our own business. And also we have a Bitcoin section. And it's a curated Bitcoin section with, with uh, videos, articles, books, and regulatory filing. So it would be interesting to someone. And then if you're interested in free education or you know anybody that wants a free college degree, go to sailor.org. We're trying to give it away. It's not easy to give stuff away, but if you want to, if you want to promote free education for everybody go to sailor.org, anybody can get an account. Everything is free. It's all creative commons, open source license. And the idea is, is anybody in the world can get a computer science degree and make a living. And so if you want to check that out, feel free. Amazing. Well, listen, look, Amazing work. Congratulations on uh, everything you've achieved so far. Um, you, like it's, you've, you've come through Bitcoin like a steam train this last couple of months or few weeks, and it's been fascinating to watch. Um, it's great to get to know you. Great to talk to you a couple of times. I, I expect, well, I hope, and then if uh, it's possible, I expect we'll do this every maybe six months to a year. We'll have a catch-up. We'll do another one of these, hopefully in person at some point. We'll actually sit down and do this in person and maybe go and grab some food. But anything you ever need from me, you know you can reach out to me. You've got my number and everything now. And look, I wish you the best. I obviously hope your investment is... Uh, uh, super successful because that'll be great for me as well so uh all the best and take care thanks for having me on your show peter i've learned a lot and i always i always enjoy our conversations who is sailor sailor is a bitcoin bull, bull, bull. all right how good was that i know it split it over two parts it's you know what sometimes some people say oh they're too long so here you go you have the choice now you can listen to them in two separate sessions but i hope you enjoyed it it is my longest interview ever so far so sorry matt odell your crown has been taken but i'm sure we can we can get that crown back to you at some point we talked a lot before the interview and i knew it was going to be a banger michael's such a great speaker um 
and even after we hit the three hour mark i had so many more questions for him i could have gone for honestly this could have been like five six hours i'm definitely going to get michael back on the show again and hopefully the price of bitcoin will be a lot higher hopefully his investment would have worked out pretty pretty well for him and hopefully a bunch more companies would have followed suit um, appreciate Michael's time. I really enjoyed this one. I'm really great to have him as part of the community now. If you do have any questions, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Outside of that, have a great week and I'll see you all on Friday. Who is Sailor? Sailor is a Bitcoin bull, bull, bull.